you're getting ready to explain something important, you're pretty sure they already know it, and you say, you know, well, it goes without saying, and then you say it. Right? It's kind of the transition the Apostle Paul makes here in First Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 9 through 12 this morning, so I want to invite you to open your Bibles there or your Bible app. Um, but, um, uh, you know, we put scriptures on the, on the screen to assist you, especially when we go to different passages throughout the sermon, but it's important to be seeing scripture in the context of scripture. So, uh, so I would encourage you to open your physical Bible or your Bible app. Any, anything that has God's word is, is good with me. So, uh, but he says, you know, uh, about brotherly love now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another for it that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia but we urge you brothers to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. In other words, he's saying, since Christians have been taught by God, we are to be walking and working in love. Walking in love, working in love. Love has the other person's best interest in mind. Love has a source. The source of love is God for Christian love in particular. He, he could not be more clear. He's saying, Christians, you have been taught by God. You yourselves, that's an emphasis. You, you yourselves have been taught by God. Another way of saying it is, is you have been taught by God himself. God himself has taught you yourselves to do what? To love your fellow Christians. Now, that's the part that seems like, well, it goes without saying. And yet, here we are saying it. Love is not just a feeling that you have. Love is an expression. I love that Matthew pointed out that the di most difficult point with the dis for a decision sometimes is, is the decision to act, to take that first step or to take whatever the next step is in the exhortation toward the direction you're going. If the Lord calls you to love your spouse, you're not just thinking loving thoughts about your spouse. You're expressing ways to communicate your love for your spouse. So maybe an application of that is in order to love my spouse, I need to communicate that I love my spouse. In order to love a brother or sister in the Lord, I need to communicate maybe that I love a brother or sister in Christ. Or maybe it's less about the, the communication verbally of love uh, towards someone in the Lord, but maybe it's an expression of the demonstration of that love, which also communicates it, right? God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, I don't know if God really loves me. Look at the demonstration of his love. He sent his only begotten son, his only given son into the world to live perfectly and for the purpose of dying to pay the penalty for our sins, so he says, we've been taught, you've been taught by God in several ways to love one another. 
He's recalling Jesus' statement in John 13, 34, where he says, A new command I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. Even Jesus, in giving a new command, he's drawing from the Levitical code. This is uh, a reference to Leviticus 19, 18, where he says, uh, Moses, not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I am the Lord is a way of putting a old, large font exclamation point behind everything that the Lord commands. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. God. You ever driven down the highway and you see some of those quotes that are from the Bible and, and rather than referencing the actual passage, maybe it does, but then underneath it, it says God. Right? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. God. The prophet Isaiah speaks about those who in the new covenant have been will be taught of the Lord or have been taught of the Lord. I mean, the Old Testament, he's pointing forward. So he's speaking in a in a future tense. But Jesus quotes this Isaiah proverb in John six forty five. He says it is written in the prophets and they will be all and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. This is Jesus speaking. And so he's speaking not only of the content of what you've been taught, but the relationship that a believer has with the father through Jesus and the fact that even further, Jesus's followers have seen that he has modeled it for us. So Jesus or the Lord, the Father, the Son and the Spirit teach it to us in a content form in what we would have in what we would call the law of Moses. The first five books of the Old Testament that New Testament believers would have been referencing in some of the Psalms and some of the Proverbs. Then we have the word of God further written out for us in its what we would call the closed canon of scripture. But even before that, like as Paul is writing here, he's saying you've been taught you yourselves have been taught by God. By who? Well, by the law of Moses. And you've been taught by the son of God who came and set an example for you that you ought to walk in it, that you ought to follow him in it. So you you've been taught. It's been written down. Everything that's happened in the past has been written down for your instruction. John 13, 15, Jesus said, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done for you. He set an example to the believers in love that serves others. So he's teaching, he's modeling. <clears throat> and then we see that we have the Holy Spirit who not only we've seen the teaching in its content form, we've seen the teaching in its modeling form. We have a relationship with God, the father, and now we are empowered New Testament believers with the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, 5, the apostle Paul says, hope doesn't put us. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Later in the same book, same letter. Paul writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. John echoes this same idea about the Holy Spirit, right? You've, you've been instructed, you've been taught, you've got the relationship and you have the Holy Spirit and you yourselves, John says, have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. Now, does that mean that you know everything that there is to know in this world? No, what it means is you have all knowledge to be able to do what God is calling you to do now. 
Yeah, but what about, no, 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 don't worry about all those things. Don't hear me say they're not important. There are a lot of really important things in this world that I have no clue about. I know that's going to be a surprise to some of you. (laughs) I can tell by the laughter. (laughs) We've been taught in a content form, and we've been taught by Christ's example. We've been brought into relationship by Christ, into relationship with the Father, and given the Holy Spirit. You've been taught, and so we are to continue and increase in it. Remember the context for this letter. He's not writing a group of people who have no interest in following the Lord. He's writing a letter to godly people who are growing in their relationship with the Lord. Remember how he starts off the letter encouraging them. Hey, you're doing this. This is great. But now I urge and ask. Remember that phrase from a couple months ago? But now I urge and ask that you continue to do so all the more. Remember, this isn't this isn't this isn't a command or a request from God who's never happy with his servants, his children. No, this is not the father looking on the child that just can't ever do well enough. If that if you had a father like that, you're going to wrestle with this a little or it would be natural that you would wrestle with this a little. You know, my dad's never satisfied with me. I, I can't ever do well enough. I can have a great ERA and it's just never good enough. It's always got to be a little better. Well, this is not the picture of a father who's never satisfied with his children, but one who is seeking to continue encouraging his children to continue growth in godliness. Remember, we were talking about progressive sanctification recently. It's the sense that a little bit more uh, each and every day, each and every moment, we're striving to grow more and more into the image of Christ. This is a wonderful goal. This is this is the life mission and vision of uh, of a Christian. That's why I mean, our vision statement is to reach, teach and live out what it means to be wholehearted followers of Christ. Like, yeah, we can spend our lives going after that goal. And we ought to. We ought to. He's saying, continue in it. You're doing this. Verse uh, 10, the second half of verse 10, he says, for indeed, that is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Commentator Leon Morris, he says, something which should give modern Christians much food for thought is the way in which the early church was characterized by love. Behold, how these Christians love one another is hardly the comment which springs spontaneously from the lips of the detached observer nowadays, he says. But if our manner of life was based on the New Testament picture, I'm sorry, was based on the New Testament, picturing something like it would be inevitable. It's as easy for Christians in a church to be divided and sit on opposite sides or in different sections or to nod their heads and say hello to a friend or someone that is they are being cordial with, but not reconciled with. And he's saying that ought not to be so of the Christian church. The Christian church is to set an example that to set an example for the world that follows the example of your their savior who served Judas and washed his feet on the night he was to be betrayed. That's not just coming to the place where you can be cordial around each other for a period of time 
and then sort of avoid each other. It doesn't mean you're attacking each other necessarily. It just means, no, there's an actual growth in and expression of love that God calls his people to abound in. Right. Elsewhere, I think it's in Romans five where he says outdo one another in showing honor. So my question to you to borrow from Mr. Ott a few minutes ago is what is the next action step you might take in accomplishing that? Rather than just thinking about the fact that it's what God calls us to do. What's your next step in it? Is it repentance for an attitude? Maybe. Is it a confession of a wrong to another brother or sister of Christ? Maybe. Is it a pressing into the relationship to say, you know, more than just like, oh, yeah, oh, we're fine. Okay, fine isn't the goal. Abounding in love for one another is the goal. And that you do so more and more. That's the goal. Increase and abound in love for one another. He says, look, you've become an example to all of the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So keep going at it. Keep going hard after Jesus in this way. Abound and increase in love for one another and for all as we do for you. In the in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Right. We've seen uh, believers don't seek don't seek vengeance, whether it's to a brother or, or even to a an unbeliever. Don't seek vengeance. And now we see we're to we're to live exemplary lives to the effect that unbelievers see in positive ways what it means to be transformed. <clears throat> That's what he's getting to now. He's saying as you work, as you live, work diligently in love. The second point for today, work diligently in love. This isn't working. What's your motive here? This isn't working to get a pay raise, although there's nothing wrong with that. But it's about the motive. It's not working to get a promotion, although there's nothing wrong with a promotion. But he's saying, let your motive flow from love for unbelievers. Why? So that you might have opportunity to share the gospel with them. I'll never forget... uh, there was several years ago, it probably goes back uh, 15 years at this point, I was uh, studying vision statements. I was developing a vision statement for um, for our student ministry in New Jersey. And so I just spent, you know, six months or so just reading vision statements from churches and corporations. And, you know, and uh, I kind of got into like a, a nerdy niche there for a little bit. And uh, I remember reading, uh, I don't even know if this is still their vision statement, and I'm not like supporting them necessarily, but I remember reading Google's vision statement, which was to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible. I'm like, that's a vision statement. To organize all of the information in the world, of which there is a little bit, and to make it universally accessible. That's universal in language. That's access to that information, a whole lot in there. Not long after, I visited a church down in Atlanta where I was able to do some discipling training and and their children's ministry vision. Now, this is a big church. It had all kinds of money and all kinds of people that loved on the next generations. But uh, they they had a vision statement that said, um, I didn't have this on my notes, so I'm trying to recall it to mind very quickly. 
engaging the imagination to give opportunity for transformation. Engaging the imagination to give opportunity for transformation. In other words, we might engage their imagination, but that doesn't mean necessarily that one will repent of their sins and trust Christ. But what we will try to do is put 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 all our effort into loving these kids. We want to engage their imagination and we want to take them to the word. Why? That the word of God might be able to speak to their heart and help them to see their need for a savior, help them to acknowledge their own sin, to repent and turn from self and turn to Christ. And Paul is casting a vision here that says, look, you want to work hard. You want to love the brothers and sisters. You want to Mind your own affairs. You want to aspire to live a quiet life. You want to aspire to work diligently. You might call it, I almost called this sermon, blue collar love. Because he's saying work hard. Mind your own business. Aspire to live quietly. In other words, put your head down and put your hand to the plow. Why? That you might have opportunity to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who don't know it. Now, you might say, well, we live in a world today where almost everybody's heard the gospel. And I would agree with you, but I would also say there are many who have heard something that sounds like the gospel, but they're confused about what it means because the Holy Spirit hasn't yet flipped on the light switch in their mind to bring what we call illumination to their understanding, to give them understanding about the gospel. So there's three things that he focuses on here. Aspire to live quietly, right? This is an, a, a kind of a shocking oxymoron or a contradiction of terms here. He says it could be translated. One commentator uh, tells us, make it your ambition to have no ambition, right? And now that's not in a passage where he's going to challenge them not to be idle or lazy. It's a different way of saying, make your ambition God's ambition, Set your agenda to be the work that the Lord has for you. You know, Jesus said, I I have come to do the will of the Father. I don't do anything that the Father doesn't tell me to do. And everything that he tells me to do, I do. That ought to be how Christians ought to seek to live. The the Thessalonian church was growing in, in idleness because they were excited to be in this relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. They were excited for this. And they really genuinely, as we'll see in coming weeks, they genuinely knew, believed that Jesus was coming again. The Lord's return was imminent. And so they they just sort of like got distracted with actual normal living on earth, which isn't entirely bad, but it can be as we see here. He's saying, don't be so excited about the future of Jesus coming back that you actually forget to to be present where you're at, to, to, to work hard where you're at, right? I mean, as you'll see in the coming weeks, the next several sections uh, of this book talk of this letter, talk about the return of the Lord and the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord ought to motivate us, but not to disconnect from the world, but in our being connected with the world to be connected as salt and light. We ought to work in such a way that sets an example for unbelievers that this is how God's people act, not because we're wonderful people. We're not any people looking for a place of honor. We're not any people looking to be uh, respected by outsiders. We're looking for the day that we go to heaven and the Lord says, well done, 
good and faithful servant to men and women and boys and girls, young and old, who have recognized their need for a savior, turned from the self and turned to him and found a better way of living, found a better purpose for living. If you're living just for your paycheck, I feel sorry for you. I don't mean any disrespect. I mean, there is so much wonderful that God has called you to. You want to talk about purpose? Living for God's kingdom, living for the day of the Lord personally and in your relationships with others. And that's why Paul says, I make it my ambition. Now, wait, didn't you just say make it your ambition to have no ambition? Make your ambition God's ambition. Paul says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. In 2 Corinthians 5, 9, he says, so whether we are at home or away, meaning in our bodies, whatever it is that we're seeking to do, excuse me, we make it our aim to please the Lord. The motivator is that Christ is returning. And we don't want to be found as those who've been invited to the wedding and haven't RSVP'd and aren't busy preparing for the bridegroom. Church, let's be busy, focused. Inside these walls and as importantly, outside of these walls, in your homes, in your neighborhoods, in your in your jobs our motivator is the lord's return so don't get caught up in the busyness of others mind your affairs verse 11b he says mind your own affairs the the thessalonian church remember this is a keep on doing more and more keep on growing it's important to remember that because it's easy for us to hear criticism and get our feelings hurt and feel like oh well he said i'm not doing well enough well, no, he said, you're doing great. Keep on. You're doing great. Keep on. Keep on working until Jesus comes. They're doing good ministry, but they weren't just busy with their own business. We don't know all of the context, but we get the idea that they're busy in the affairs of other people. It's really easy to be running your mouth or being in an environment where other people are running their mouth or or it's really easy to be uh, caught up in a wrong way. There, I think there's a right way, let's just say, for example, to be civically engaged. We're Christians. We ought to be engaged civically in our, in our nation. We ought to be uh, lobbying and voting for and, and, and running for positions and all those kinds of things where we can stand for truth. I definitely believe that. I definitely believe that's all throughout Scripture, we've got to stand for the Lord in whatever we do, but not to the degree that we forget why we're here. We are not here to make the United States of America the best nation on the world over and above other nations. We're here that the gospel of Jesus Christ would go out and permeate every person or every heart or every context in the United States of America and throughout the world. And throughout the world. There was a time when, I'm going to get myself into some hot water here, but here goes. There was a time when churches at times, in different denominations and whatnot, and they would have 
uh, like a Christian flag and the United States flag on the stage or behind the preacher, or, you know, whatever the case might be, something like that. And I, I know of a pastor who, it's not like we're anti-United States of America. We're very much not, not. But we're more so the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God for uh, saving a people from every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And so rather than say, you know, we need to take off this United States flag, because it's not about that. We're very much for the people who live here in the United States of America. But they added another 20 flags. And in one sense, that's how we ought to be living as men and women who love the place where God has placed us to live. Right. We ought to be working. We ought to be working for the betterment of our city, our town. We ought to be working for the betterment of our nation. We ought to be standing up for the things that the Lord says in his word that we ought to be standing up for 100 percent. But our motive is for a greater kingdom. Our motive is always with an eye toward the return of the Lord, that as many as possible would come to know the saving grace of Jesus Christ. He says, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. In other words, you're busy, but you're busy with the wrong thing. He says, let's come back to what we're supposed to be busy for. God's kingdom. Well, there's a little debate going on over here. I want to get myself involved in that so I can be in the know. Get out. Be silent. That's what he says. It's right there. Live quietly. Mind your own affairs. And work with your hands as you were taught. Now, this isn't an argument for blue collar work over white collar work or anything like that. The point is this. The Greeks in their day were would aspire to work that would bring prominence and honor and good reputation and status. And he's saying, be busy with your hands. There's no work that's beneath a Christian. I mean, these were largely in this area. These were largely blue collar workers. No shame. Set an example in it. Work hard. Be joyful in your work. Put your hand to the plow. Work hard in your job. So again, it's not an argument for this kind of work over this kind of work. This was their context. Be busy with your own hands. In whatever it is, the work that the Lord has given you to do, be busy at it. Work hard at it within the parameters of what God says the purpose of work is for. Don't extend work beyond the purpose that God gave it to us for, which would be to provide for the needs of your family and give you a context to set an example of what it means to be transformed by the grace of God so that others would be intrigued to know about this God you serve. So he's saying, be busy there. Be busy with with good hard work put your head down get your mind focused on the good work of providing for your family so that god's good plan for hard work is shown to be a wonderful example you know there was a time when i used to joke about uh somebody taking a bite of a fruit and now we got all this work like no 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 work was established before the fall work is good 
Adam and Eve were placed in this perfect, glorious environment to work it and to keep it. It's just that after the fall, the work got hard. It was less enjoyable. The ground, instead of just responding to the the nurture of cultivating the soil and bringing forth good uh, fruit, brought forth thorns and thistles now. There was a day when you didn't have to weed your garden. Not anymore. Not anymore. There was a day when our hearts were attuned to the Lord. But now, God has to weed the thorns and thistles out of our hearts. He's got to pull out the weeds of idolatry, the weeds of self-love, the weeds of misdirected priorities, the weeds of laziness, the weeds of busyness that looks busy but is busy with the wrong things. He's got to weed things that look like they're spiritual but have no true root of the Spirit's work in them. Aren't you thankful, friends, that he is a good gardener? He gives attention to what the... I'm a terrible gardener. Like, I am terrible. I garden with our lawn tractor. (laughs) I know I'm saying this to the wrong crowd, but it's just true. I'm like, I think I can go left here enough to kind of get in and out before taking out these beautiful things in there. See, I call them things. Before I... I'm just going to stop while I'm behind. (laughs) Sherilyn's like, why can't you get off and go in there and weed it out? I'm like, you know. I'm being playful. I mean, it's true, but I'm being playful. God's not like that. He doesn't come in and just chop everything down. No, he comes in and he prunes. That means he pulls out growth. That's not necessarily all sinful, but he pulls off what needs to be pulled off so that what needs to thrive can thrive. My question to you, brothers and sisters, is what needs to thrive in your heart so that you can walk in love and work in love? What needs to be pruned from your life? Some of it is good, but needs to be pulled back so more of the good spirit-filled growth can continue to grow and can continue to thrive in your life. What are you busy with that is distracting you from the, the call of God on your life? Your call is not everything. Jesus carried his cross Your cross, my cross, is not Christ's cross. Your cross is not my cross, and mine is not yours. What is it that God is calling you to engage in? Husbands, do you need to engage more with your family in spiritual things? Oh, here he goes again. That's right. Because it's the one area where when you will obediently and humbly and lovingly engage with your family spiritually, so much other growth will happen. Don't hide behind hard work. God gave you work to provide for your family so that you can have time with your family to build into them spiritually. 
Ladies, what is God calling you to call in your life so that you can give more attention to the right things in your world? Don't try to be everything to everyone. Be who God called you to be for your husband, for your children, for your grandchildren. Primarily, that is what God has called you to, calling us to. It's a good call. Unfortunately, it's, it's not a call that's celebrated in our culture anymore. I'm starting to digress, but three things he says. This is, these things are motivated by the opportunity for evangelism, right? Aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, work hard with your own hands. This is because you want to have opportunity. Well, first, because you want to glorify God in the things he's given you. Secondly, so that you might have opportunity to engage in evangelistic conversation. People will, will not want to hear about your God if you're lazy at work. But being a hard worker also does not give you freedom to pull back time with your family. I know we have seasons. I just, I'm not speaking about the seasons. I'm talking about the trajectory. Walk properly toward outsiders. Jesus said, You've, you believers have been given the secret of the kingdom. You, you know why you're created. You know what you live for. You know when you read the word of God, you're able to understand it. Outsiders or unbelievers don't. And so God has given you clear illumination and communication about his word. We ought to know it so that we are able to use the relationship opportunities that we have with others to help them clearly understand the goodness of God. And their need to rest in him and trust him, not in themselves. That's the motivation for work. You wonder tomorrow morning when you're tired, you go, oh, why am I doing this again? That's right, because there's a lost world who needs to see godly people working with godly integrity. Mostly with their mouths shut about a whole bunch of other things. With their head down and their hand to the plow and then going home to love your families in the gospel. Jesus said salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt with your, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You see, if you, if you, if you work in love to set an example of love so that you might have evangelistic opportunity and then people step in a place like Oak Grove Church and see believers not able to get along with one another. And even getting along is not the right phrase. Seeing believers who have chosen how much they're going to honor one another, how much they're going to reconcile and say, yeah, it's good enough. I mean, Jesus said, leave your gift at the altar, go and make it right, and then come back. Like, I'm not worried about your gift. I want you. So it comes back to this. Love one another as you've been taught with the scriptures and seen in the example of Christ and have been empowered to do. Well, I just can't have that conversation. Well, that's a lie from the enemy. You can. What you mean is you don't want to. So let's just call it what it is. I'm not trying to be unkind. Let's just, I don't want to have that because I think that's going to be hard and I don't know how it's going. Okay, well, that makes sense. But that, it just can't stop there. You got, you've got more to do. So that when people come in, they say, oh, it's by your love for one another. They know 
that God is at work in here. And Jesus set that example when he gave his life at Calvary. I mean, even Peter striking the ear off, hacking the ear off of of one of the soldiers. Jesus says, oh no, put your sword back in its place. And he heals him. What? Those who who are diametrically opposed to anything about the gospel. Your enemies, in a kingdom sense. And Jesus heals. If we're excited and anticipating bringing healing work to the life of those who are not of the kingdom of heaven yet, how much more so in the lives of one another? So back to what Matthew said. Thank you for writing the opening and closing of this sermon on the fly. The most difficult point of a decision is taking that next step or deciding what your next step is going to be. Thankfully, you have the spirit to help you discern what that is. Would you listen to him? And that means listen with an ear toward acting in faith-filled obedience. And let's be busy about the affairs of the kingdom. As good gospel representatives, ambassadors for Christ in this outpost 